dropped and you're just going to have to like, find out about the chassidus of other stuff somehow. I know, it's a shock that we can't fit everything into an hour, right? Okay. Sometimes chassidus asks very weird questions. One of the questions that chassidus asks is, the Torah tells us that teishvu basukas, you should dwell in the sukkah. And Hasidus asks, well, how is it possible to dwell in the sukkah? As if like dwelling in the sukkah is this very phenomenal, the impossible task, and we need a great explanation as to how it's possible. Um, it would seem to be quite simple, right? You build a sukkah, and then what do you do? And you don't even have to do that. You just hang out in there and do the mitzvah of dwelling in the sukkah. Seems pretty straightforward. In fact, arguably, once you have a sukkah, it is the easiest mitzvah to do because all you have to do is just be in the sukkah. <laughs> Which, so clearly, when Chassidus is asking the question, how is it possible to dwell in the sukkah, they're not talking about the physical performance of the mitzvah. They're talking about its spiritual dynamic, right? What, there's something about what it means to dwell and something about what a sukkah is that are on the face of it quite incompatible. And nonetheless, the Torah requires us um, to dwell in the sukkah. So we're going to dedicate the class to try and understand that. So number one is A, what is a sukkah? And B, what is dwelling? And C, why they don't seem to fit together? And D, how nonetheless it's possible to dwell in a sukkah? So how many things are there? Four. Four, like the four species, right? No correlation, I just... Right. Okay. So, I have a thing that I believe in very strongly about teaching, which is that in every class, there should always be something that the students don't understand. Now, sometimes it's a small thing, and sometimes it's a big thing, but... Um, sometimes I fail because, you know, I'm limited. But I believe that it's oh, very important that no class should go by where the students understood everything that was said. It's always important the student walks away, whether consciously or unconsciously, having been exposed to something they do not understand. Would anyone like to explain why I believe that? Other than the fact that I'm cruel and sadistic. <laughs> that, other than that. So that you're not satisfied and like, hey, I got everything. Right. Subconsciously. Right. You feel like you've learned, if you feel like you completely understand it, then you obviously didn't because it's always more understanding. Right. Right. So the, the, the job of an educator is to help a person get where they could not get without the educator, not to do the stuff they could do on their own. So one of the things the job of an educator is to help a student grasp and integrate things that they wouldn't be able to grasp and integrate on their own. But at the same time, it's also the job of the educator to get the student to realize how deep, how profound, um, how complex something really is. In other words, not to sell it short and ultimately therefore not to sell themselves short. Now, In how do you do that? How do you give a person a sense 
that there's something they don't understand in a way that's actually going to make them want to learn more. Right? I mean, if you just like start telling people stuff and they're confused, generally what's the reaction that people have? Okay, forget it. Yeah. So how do you do that? So there's one way, which is you hide the fact that you're doing it. You do it a little bit, you hide it, and so not obvious, and so it's very subliminal. It's here and there you drop something without explaining it. Here and there you, you say something um, that makes reference that there's more there and you move on. And so the unconscious part of the person is getting the message that there's more going on, but consciously the person is learning and gaining and growing and understanding, and so they're quite satisfied and enjoying the experience. That's one way of doing it. Is that the only way to do it? No. So what would a way to do it that's more explicit, that you're quite explicitly making it clear that this is way beyond what the student is capable of understanding, and it doesn't have an effect of pushing them away, of making them say, just forget the whole thing? Anyone want to volunteer a... You explain to them exactly what they don't understand. And that's for sure going to work? Um. I mean, I, this, is, you have to, this is my livelihood, so if, if, if you're giving me a technique, I want to make sure that it's kind of reliable, right? Okay, so what you're doing is saying, let's take the first technique that I said and just like make it a little more explicit. That once you said, well, if you like this, you had the, 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 the hors d'oeuvres, you like the main course, right? So what you're really saying is the way to get the person to want to learn more is not from the stuff they don't know, but from the stuff they did understand, right? And then you're just pointing out that there's more for them to understand. I'm asking something different. Can you convey in a very overt way how much this topic is really beyond them and that itself makes them want to learn more about it. Is there a way to do that? If, if a teacher is like passionate about something and they don't have like the time to explain it but like, they explain like a little bit of it in like a very excited way and the student doesn't really understand it Okay, okay. So what you're saying is that if the, if the student picks up on the relationship the teacher has with the topic, that could do it. Right? If the teacher is very excited, is very passionate, is very enthusiastic, it seems to the teacher this is extremely meaningful, right? That sense that the teacher is living with something very important, very precious, that itself draws the student to want to learn more about it, even though they have no clue what the teacher's talking about. That's very different, right? That's not, that's not I'm saying, well, you, if you like the stuff you understood, you'll like the rest of it, right? They're saying, the thing that you have no idea what's saying, but you, you sense that the way the other person has it means that there's something there. The way they're relating to it, even though I don't get it, like, I don't see what's being said at all. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story now. Okay? Was that what you had? We'll see. We'll see. 
So I'm going to tell you a story. Once, there was this kid. And he had some money, some change in his pocket. And he stuck his hand in his pocket, and the change went missing. And he looked and looked and looked. And he couldn't find it. He stuck his hand in his pocket. And finally, he says, Ah, I found it. And his friend says, what, you found the change? He says, no, I found the hole. And that's the story. What? There's a song about that. Okay. Now, um, was that life changing? No. Why not? There's no moral to the story? Come on. Think of, think of a moral to the story. Come on, let's think of a moral to the story. You're smart. Come on, think of a moral to the story. It's not, I grant you that wasn't life-changing, but like not because there's no moral to the story. Think of a moral to the story. If you find the hole, then you prevent any further accords from being lost. There we go. The moral to the story. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now is it life-changing? Now is it life-changing? No. No. Like, it's nice. It's cute. It has a point. But it's not life-changing, right? Okay, good. Okay. I have a friend that this story was life changing. Yes. I was going to say, like, if you could identify what you're struggling with, like the problem too, and then that's the step to recovering from where you're going. Right. Be applied to something small or whole, but something so large as to, like, your existence and what you're doing. Because once you understand what the mission is, it's to come and then you can, like, use that as a framework. Right. A hundred percent. Did you know that before I tell the story? No. You know, like that, that telling the story gave you... I never heard the story. No, I'm not, and now you didn't hear the story. The, the, the lesson you just said, that idea that you just said right now, yeah. was that something you knew before today's class? No. That knowing where the problem was is able to fix it, you had no idea about that. That's totally new information? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to make a guess, which is you probably knew it, maybe you didn't articulate it that way, maybe you didn't put it in those words, but because usually people can't say something quite so eloquently if they just discovered it 10 seconds ago, right? So it means that on some sense you were aware of that. Maybe, again, putting, saying the story, putting the lesson in that way triggers something. I'm not saying there's no learning happening, but you're not getting something with no clue about before, like total revolutionary. Okay, I have a friend, this story was life-changing. Okay, well, the story was life-changing. Um, this story was... One of the, one, not the only, but one of the things that was instrumental in him becoming a chassid. He was learning in a non-chassidic yeshiva, and he went to a febrenger with an older chassid from Russia, and this chassid's name was Motto Kozliner. Motto Kozliner used to sit at the febrenger, and he would tell stories like this, which are like cryptic stories. At the end of the story, he would then say to him, say in Yiddish, Das is mine, this is mine. After he finished each story. And that was it, like, that's what he, like, he didn't even, like, say the lesson of the story. So why was the story life-changing for my friend? It wasn't because of the story. It was because of how this older chassid, Malta Kazliner, was telling the story. The way he spoke about it, there was so much soul in it, so real. Uh, and he said, my friend said, he says, I remember this was the first time I sat in 
and somebody was saying something and it was clear to me I had no idea what he was talking about. Like no clue, like from another planet, but it was really clear to me that this is real. This is, this is, this is, this is something else because the way he was speaking, the way he was talking about it gave me that sense. Now I said it and I said a story. I didn't say it like that, right? Because I'm not that deep of a person, right? And uh, you know, when someone said there's no moral, I challenged someone found you find a moral, right? You develop it. But when a person exposes a level of connection, a level of a level of attachment, a level of experience in something that the, the student has no frame of reference for. What they're reacting to is not the information or the lack of information, the understanding or lack of understanding. What they're relating to is the, what meaning that has to the teacher. And because, there's a, because the, the, the power of the, 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 the positivity of what it means to really live, what it means to really experience, what it really means to connect to something, that draws the person closer to this thing they have no clue what it is. And this is why you see very good teachers, as a general rule, have to be passionate about what they're teaching. Because the fact that they're passionate about teaching is doing 90% of the work. Does that make sense? Okay. Ignorance is not attractive. Pointing out what I don't understand doesn't make me say, oh, really? I don't understand. I want to understand. Like, that's generally not, I mean, again, there are very special people that like have a deep need to know things and pointing out their ignorance just stirs their quest for greater knowledge, but that's not usual. It's not pointing out what the person can't understand. It's pointing out a level of being, a level of experience that that person has never seen before, never experienced before, never touched before. No, you can't. Because you don't have the ability to experience things deeply in an arbitrary way. I'm saying, like, you did something as, you know, cult happened because the cult you So I don't want to get distracted with like cults, um, but I, I do think because I don't want you to misunderstand what I am saying. That's not really what happens in a cult. In a cult, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of other things which are. Well, let me let me actually instead of talking about let me talk more about this. Okay, one of the signs that something. It, one, one of the ways that the more deeply passionate somebody is about something like this, the more it touches them in a deep way, the less... The less they feel the need for you to agree with them. Motoko's right. living story, this is my story. Like, you don't understand what I'm talking about, that's fine. You don't have to understand, it's mine. Right? In other they're not in a state of convincing and persuading. Now, it could be that when you actually engage in teaching, you have to then do some of that, right? But this level, you're not actually engaging with them. You're not, you're, you're, you're exposing yourself. You are not 
you're not engaged in an act of, of persuasion, of change. You understand that? So, so you, and, and you can't have that kind of a depth of connection to something if it really doesn't resonate that deeply in your soul. You can't, like, you can't be that way about coffee. It's just, you can't. You can be very excited about coffee and that excitement can be very intense and passionate, whatever, but it has a superficialness to it. And, and other people sense that superficialness to it. You can be this way about things that, ha- that touch the soul deeply. And so when a, person who, when a person who hasn't been exposed to that level of experience of life is now exposed to it as someone else is sharing something that they don't understand, they pick up on that. They pick up on the, 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 the depth of the person in what they're saying, not, what the, not the information that they don't understand. And so they don't understand the information and they don't even have, they don't even, can't even empathize with the experience because they have no point of reference. But it's truth, it's depth, it's, it, it, it's relevance is something that touches them. And this obviously comes in degrees, right? There's more of this, there's less of this. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, I have a rule, which is that if you're gonna learn Tanya, you have to learn Tanya from only certain kinds of people. What are the qualifications if you're gonna learn Tanya? Who who should teach you Tanya and who should not teach you Tanya? What are the, what, what? (laughs) No, no, that's not a, I mean, that'd be nice, but it's not a prerequisite, no. So, a passionate yes knows what they're talking about, not necessarily. That, that. Like, they could be, you don't, you don't think that they have to know what they're talking about? Mm-hmm. No. They could be passionate no. about something what? that's, like, not actually Italian, <laughs> they think it's Italian, but they don't really know what they're talking about. And it's okay. Yeah. Oh. So, 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 th- this gets into, a, this, this, is, this gets into a very interesting dynamic. Something that can be passionate about something and not know what they're talking about. They're not, 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 they're mistaken. They're not mistaken. They just don't know what they're talking about. Let me explain. Um, a person can have a sense that something is very real and very relevant and very meaningful in their life. And when they actually try and conceptualize it, put a framing on it, make sense of it, like the way they understand it actually is not make a lot of sense. It doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Does that mean the underlying, the underlying, I'll, I'll give you an example, rather than doing the abstract, yeah? Um, most people love their mother, right? That tends to be a pretty natural thing. Okay, yeah? All right, so you go to a person, relatively healthy human being, and you ask them, do you love your mother? And what do they say? Yes, okay. And you say, why? And they're not, they don't realize that this is like a sadistic Rabbi Kaufman game, so they, they make the mistake of answering the question. So what do they say? They start, first off, their mind starts coming, starts thinking, right? And the wheels start turning. So what do you say? Why do you love your mother? She makes me food, right? Say, ah! And so if your mother stopped making you food, you wouldn't love her anymore? Hmm? So you revise, right? Now, at some point, this game ends. And when does this game end? 
When the person, real, the person you're asking like why they love their mother realizes that no matter what I say about why I love my mother, the person who's asking the question is going to be able to, to, to like dissect what I'm saying to like make it not mean what I really mean. And then you start to realize like, I don't even know what I fully mean, but I love my mother and it's very clear and you shut up and leave me alone. <laughs> yes? Okay. In other words, it is wrong that as people understanding is our first link to reality. That's not true. It's an important link, it's a useful link, it's very powerful, but it is not like, it is not like if I understand, then I, then I get it. And if I don't, it's not true. There's a lot of things that are like that. Yes, my brother told me that. My brother told me that. My brother did that too. We were debating once. And, and, and I like, it was like, Winning every point, and he says, "Look, just because you're smarter doesn't make you right." <laughs> like, and it was, and it was true. Like, he was, like, he was actually right, and I was not. There's, a, there's, there is, there's a part of ourselves which has a way of sensing the realness of something, the importance of something that is prior to our making sense of it. Now, what does Tanya speak about? Like, as a book, what does Tanya speak about? Like, if I had to, like, summarize Tanya, like, three or four sentences. What's going on inside the inner world? Okay, it involves the inner world, that's true, right? But, like, I mean, lots of things involve your inner world, something more specific. Is that unique to Tanya? Can we, can we make a description that's unique to Tanya? Yeah, no, it captures more or less what Tanya is about. You're, you're, you're right. That, it's, that, that's the genre the book is in, but like that's. Uh... By the way, the fact you're going to be able to come with an answer means that you. Don't use the word Hasidic. That means, that's just like covering up ignorance. I'll just slap the label Hasidic on, and then you don't ask me any questions what that means. No, really. Now, what you're doing now is a fascinating thing. You're introspecting, right? You're. you're which means you, you don't have the answer, but you have the answer, right? Again, illustrating that we have some sense of things well before we make sense of them. Yeah? I have all day, actually. I only have another 45 minutes, but... And I have to get to the sukkah, right, at some point. Like, like what does that do with the sukkah? You don't know yet. But you, but you, do you feel like you're circling around something that you're having a hard time articulating? Like you keep, like I could, everything you just said, like or it's not unique to Tanya. Like it's true, Tanya talks about something in that circle, right? But what is that? Oh! Now, now, what's the neshama, right? We go on, right? Here's my point, right? You don't, in other words, you have a sense. You have a sense, right? Maybe you can't articulate it. That, okay, inner struggle, her mitzvahs, being connected, love, fear, something to do with like something intrinsic in myself called the soul. I, I, I. But if that resonates with you and you get that, not like an academic understands things, and then you sit down and you're learning Tanya with somebody and they don't know anything, right? And you're explaining stuff and you're coming from that place and you explain something wrong, 
Like, it, it, it's wrong. Like, that's not the meaning of that paragraph. What did the person who's learning with you get? They got a sense that there's this thing called an ashama, and we really are connected to Hashem, and we're supposed to, like, feel connected, and we have a struggle. Like, they, they got... They got what the book is about. Now, do they understand it? No. Do you understand it? No. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you have an academic, right, who is able to articulate all very clearly, but, but it's not, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's another set of ideas. And then they give like a, a lecture to a bunch of academics of, you know, the philosophy of religion. They all understand each other. They all go home and like, you know, as far as they're concerned, we're a bunch of sophisticated monkeys. Did they get it? No. So where's the really getting it coming from? There's the level of, you know, almost primal experience, a sensitivity to things that gets transferred independent of whether things are being understood properly. Now, does that mean understanding things properly is not important? No. Right? Would I come and tell you that understanding is important, not important? That's not my kind of thing. All I'm saying is not the only thing. <laughs> There's a fun, so the first thing, and really the only thing, is that the person they have us, that the, the, you're learning Tanya from, not that they understand it properly. Not that they can explain it well. But that what Tanya is about has touched them means that they, they can, they can, that can come out in their teaching you, even if what they're saying is wrong, and then that can touch you. And now we have a basis to learn and understand and to analyze. But if that's not there, then it doesn't work. Okay. So there's this sense that an, an awareness of the truth, the relevance, the meaning, the, 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 the soul of things, right? Which is where our, our real passion, our real commitment comes from. And that actually is not something that it's very easy to articulate. Most people can't, most of the things that we have in that way, when we really try to articulate them in an intelligent way to other people and explain it, we often like end up saying things that are foolish on, on you know, reflection. They don't really capture it. But the other person picks up on it. And even if that other person hasn't had that experience, doesn't have that point of reference, there's, there's still something there. I mean, this is, you know, just on a very, you know, simple analogy. Um, you can gain a lot by talking to old people. Why? They have life experience. Now, here's the thing. A lot of what they say, if they start like sharing life lessons, either is going to sound really obvious, right? Stuff that you like get in a fortune cookie, or you really don't understand what they're talking about. And a lot of talking to old people, they're not like sharing deep life lessons, they just like chat about stuff. So what's the game? It's not necessarily so much what they're saying, but the place from which they're saying it. Yeah. When I tell my child it's not a big deal when their candy you know, spills all over the floor. I'm coming from a very different place, right? Than you know, a 70-year-old bubby coming from. It's a different, it's not such a big deal. Right? When I tell my kid it's not such a big deal, what place am I coming from? You what? Life is busy. We have a lot of stuff to take care of. Like, there's real serious adult stuff, and you crying over your candy is like interfering with what needs to happen. Right? When the seven year old Bubby, where is she coming from? Again, this is an ideal, right? Like, not necessarily every seven year old Bubby is like this, like, right? But, trying to comfort the 
before the why she's saying it, where, 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 why is it not a big deal? Because there's, there's so much to life. And in the grand experience of life, like, this really is a small thing. Not like it's annoying and it's, like, you have to get it out of the way. It's like there, there's so much to what it is to live life. Having lived it, right? Like, your life is full and wonderful even with this gold candy. It's a different place. I can say that, but are you, are you coming from that experience, right? Now, does the child, the six-year-old, understand that? But do they pick up on that? And does it have an effect on them? Sure. Okay. But go on and on with examples of this theme, right? Okay? So in Hasidus, there's a technical term for this, which is called a makif. What is a makif? Literally, makif means something which surrounds. Okay? And the idea being is that it affects you, but never really becomes part of you. So a classic example of makif is light. Okay. If you turn the light on, mem kuf yud pe, or final fe actually, makif. This room right now is pitch black. Agree or disagree? Very good. Like, if we're going to describe the room, is the room itself have light? No. There's light in the room, but that's not a description of the room, right? After all, you turn the light, right? If you turn the light on, has the room changed in any way? Yeah, the light's on. Has the room changed? There's things you could do to change the room. What would be something you could do to change the room? What? That's for sure true. That is for sure true. That's right. So if the room was dark before the light, if we want to talk about the room and its status, that hasn't changed. Now, the darkness of the room has been rendered irrelevant because the, the, the light allows me to see the room. So it's great, wonderful, right? I can ignore the fact that the room is essentially dark. It doesn't, doesn't bother me. But what happens, you know, when the power goes out? <laughs> now we go back to experiencing the way it really is, which is dark. Okay? And if we would be philosophical about it, it was that way even when it was light, when, when there was light in the room. Now, what's an example of something that, that actually changes? Let's say you learn something. Okay. Now, just to be clear what I mean by learning something. Learning something means that it becomes part of how you think even when you don't realize it. That's the criteria I'm using for having learned something. Okay, so can we give examples of things you've actually learned? Not things that you, know, you were exposed to and you're doing a good job of remembering. <laughs> what would be something you've learned? Don't touch fire. Don't touch fire. Yeah. You rarely have to walk around thinking, oh, I really shouldn't touch the fire. I remember, my mother told me not to touch the fire, right? It's like fire. It's a thing you don't touch. It just governs your whole psyche, right? In fact, if you come to this, some situation where you need to touch fire, you have to actively like, go against your whole way of processing reality to, to force yourself to stick your hand in the fire, right? Okay, good. Anything else? How to get dressed, how to talk to people. 
basic arithmetic usually, right? What else? How to read. If you've been if you've been keeping Shabbos all your life, like flipping the lights. Yeah, certain aspects of keeping Shabbos. This, by the way, is a great thing about people who grow up religious, meeting people who have not or becoming religious. Is that people grow up religious all of a sudden discover that they don't really know how to keep Shabbos because they only know how to keep the parts that they like saw and observed and got used to. And there's a lot of laws of Shabbos, and so all of a sudden, like the person who doesn't know anything about Shabbos, they have no point. They start asking a bunch of questions. Like, oh, turns out, like, you don't, like, for instance, you know, the, you're telling the person, like, how to, like, how can you deal with cooking on chops? Like, well, what about this? What about that? And, like, you, in your house, you never did that. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Can you do that? Can you do that? And so you get the, what it was, you, you know in your house if you did it or you didn't. Yeah, but, but just because you didn't do it doesn't mean it's forbidden. And just because you did it doesn't mean it's allowed. Right? We all make these, all of us who grew up religious make the assumption that, right, well, my parents didn't do it. Well, does that mean it's forbidden? What do you mean? Like, like if someone says, can you make tea? You're like, oh, yeah, you have to, like, take the cup. You have to pour into the other one. Like. Okay, right. But some people make tea in the way some people use tea bags. Some people use tea bags and some people don't. So a person grows up without using tea bags, does that necessarily mean it's forbidden to use tea bags? They don't use tea bags. Right. I don't know. Right? Or, or, like, this is an interesting question, Yeah. And I'm not, I'm just leave the question open. Like, are you allowed to use a peeler on Chavez? Well, I mean, my kids, they don't, I don't use a peeler, so they'll grow up thinking that you can't use a peeler. My sister uses a peeler. Now, maybe there's a dispute in halacha. Maybe one of us is sinning. One of us, maybe one of us is like super religious unnecessarily. Like, growing up, you have no way of knowing that. The only way I don't know is they start opening up books and learn and ask rabbis and stuff, right? And so, like, it's a. So you know stuff from the experience of having lived Shabbos, which is not the same thing as the actual laws of Shabbos. Because maybe you're doing stuff you don't need to do. Maybe you're doing stuff you're not allowed to do, right? Growing up, don't have no, no way of knowing, differentiating that. Because what you're learning is... What? From seeing and mimicking, right? And, and what's very interesting is the person who grows up religious, then they learn that they were doing something they're not allowed to do. And they have to stop. All of a sudden, they realize how hard it is to keep Shabbos. One of the things when you learn to be a rabbi is you learn, you learn the laws of kosher and the laws of Shabbos. And there's a, there's a joke, which is that when you learn the laws of kosher, you're like, oh, that's permitted? That's allowed? You're allowed to do that? I didn't know. Because like, it turns out all sorts of things that Jews don't do in their kitchen is just like extra stringencies to be really, really careful. But strictly speaking, according to the letter of the law, it's not a big deal. Like... What? No, spicy things actually in the code of law. Like an example, an example would be like, can you put, can you put, um, the meat pot on the dairy counter? It's like you grew up in a kosher kitchen, like you never put the meat pot down on a dairy counter, but can you? Yeah. What if it's hot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like nobody does that, right? <laughs> So, so, like, you just learn all these things. Oh, you could do this, but, like, nobody does it. And then you learn the laws of Shabbos, and the opposite happens. Like, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> this is forbidden. That's forbidden. Like, I've been giving Shabbos my whole life. It turns out there's all this stuff on Shabbos that I thought was okay. You're not allowed to do. Like, what, I'm not going to do that because if I start doing that, we're going to have a lot of emotional reactions. It's always, it's always easier to find out stuff that you thought was forbidden is permitted than the other way around. But it's, like, a thing. Like, I, like. You know, I learned I learned smicha with a rabbi, and I used to, you know, there's bracha my noto and smicha, and you always have this. You're like, wow. You're brushing your hair. 
we're going to not turn to this. Okay, so you're learning. But that's very interesting is that a lot of the learning, a lot of, like, it's actually really hard to learn stuff, right? And a lot of it has to do with, you have to, you have to implement it in experience in order to really absorb it. Okay. So... Very good. So, so I'll tell you a good story. There was a Jew named Rabbi Yoshever Soloveitchik. You heard of Rabbi Yoshever Soloveitchik? He's known also as JB. Yeah, yeah. He's the Russian Yeshiva of Yeshiva University. So he grew up in a town called Kaslavich. Now he was, in his own words, a scion of one of the most misnagdic houses in all of Israel. Um, his his family, the Soloveitchiks, were well-known opponents of the Hasidic movement and ideology. He grew up in a town of Kaslavich, and Kaslavich always had a non-Hasidic rabbi, but the town was mostly made up of Chabad Hasidim. There's a story why they always had a non-Hasid as the town rabbi. So his father, Rav Moshe Soloveitchik, was the rabbi of the town, and he was a little kid. So he went to Cheder. Now, who was the teacher in the Cheder? A little kid to school for little boys. A Chabad Chassid. An old school Chabad Chassid who spends a lot of time thinking about God and learning Tanya and davening and like, you know. And um, so he tells a story that they were, they were, they were in school and, and the way it works is that they would read the Pasuk, to read the verse from the Chumash, all the kids together in a sing song and they would translate it um, into Yiddish. And it's very cute. I don't know if it's the most effective way of teaching, but it's very cute. Um, and the, 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 the teacher was like kind of like half paying attention in his own little world. I think he said it was raining outside. And they were, they were in the section of the Chumash that deals with the story of, of Yosef and he sold into Egypt. And the brothers come and he asks, is, is my father still alive? Or is, and he doesn't say my father, he doesn't reveal himself yet. He says, is your father still alive? And they get to the verse where he says, is, 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 where, he asks, where he asks the brothers, do you have a father? Yesh l'cha'av, you have a father. And all of a sudden, the teacher like, wakes up from wherever he was, whatever other place he was, and he tells all the kids, read it again, read it again. So they read the verse again. He says, read it again. They read the verse again. They translate Yiddish. They don't know what they want. So, and then he gets very emotional. His face gets like, all flushed. And he, like, and he goes over, I think he goes over to, to Vyashavir Solveitch, and he says, do you have a father? Do you have a father? Do you have a father? <laughs> he says, I didn't know what he wanted from me. He says, now I understand what he wants. Wanted. Do you have a father? You, do you know what it means to have a father? Do you know what it means that God is your father? Is that something you have to find in yourself? And we say, Avinu Makenu, right? So you can say from today to tomorrow. Do you know? Do you know that or you don't know it? So you ask about Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. What's the answer? I can only know that I have a forefather, four so I find them inside myself. I have to find the Avram in me, the Moshe in me. Otherwise, I will never know that I really have these ancestors. I have to find their legacy in myself. That's what it really means to know. Now, that's a lot more difficult than... What's that? That's a lot more difficult, arguably infinitely more difficult learning than knowing how to keep Shabbos, right? Okay. It's a knowledge that goes deeper and deeper. So now, what happens 
you don't know that you have a father and you don't know that there's Avraham. You've learned it, you've understood it, you remember it, but you don't know it, right? And you encounter someone who does know it. Does that affect you? Oh yeah, it really affects you. Profoundly. But does it become part of you? No. So what's that experience called? Makif. Like the light, the lights in the room, does that have a profound effect on how it relates to the room? Sure, I can see, I can navigate, right? But has the room changed? No. Something can have a profound effect on you, and yet fundamentally you haven't changed at all. I don't, you know, if we're going to be honest, do I know that, do I know that I have a forefather, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, mothers, Sarif, Gerachla, do I know that? No. I've learned it, I read it, I understand it, I can explain it, but I don't, I don't really know it. You can accept it, but that's not the same thing as knowing. The same way I've never met my great-grandfather, That's right, but that's not the same thing. I would make an I would make a very like cynical argument about with the modern world that we that, that in the modern world because of the way culture of individualism we know we've we've given even a harder time of knowing we have any ancestry. Okay. And I'll explain to you what I mean. No, I'm saying we in general. And I'll explain to you what I mean. One of the one of the things that Chassidus says about really knowing that you have an ancestor is that you see yourself as part of a chain rather than your life beginning with you and ending with you. <coughs> and that that part actually matters to you more than the individual existence that you have. So now, in, in a society where we you know, very much celebrate and prize the individual person, you, know, you grow up, you move away from home, you say, make your own decisions, right? It makes it much more difficult culturally to come to that kind of knowledge. I'm not saying it's impossible, I'm just saying it makes it more difficult. Right? Now, what if you live in a more traditional society? Okay, here's an interesting thing about Jews. How do we call, when a man gets called up to the Torah, how do they get called up to the Torah? Son of his father. Son of his father, right? Now, Because that's become like a whole formal thing, you don't think of that as your name. But imagine like your name, like imagine like you were known as this daughter of your mother, the daughter of your father. That, that, that's, that's your name. It's a whole different way of experiencing yourself, of people relating to you, right? Well, that's like now. when you're speaking to someone who's older generation and you just say, oh, my grandfather mm-hmm. is him. And then... No, 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 if, 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 if you speak to someone from an older generation who knew your grandparents or something, right? And you say, oh, I'm so-and-so's granddaughter. Oh. Let's go, oh, what, 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 what now? Now they know you? <laughs> yes, they feel like they know you. Why? Because, right? Okay. So this thing of makif, this makif is, it's very real, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't change us. Now, the general thing with makif, the normal thing with a makif is, that makif doesn't have what's called in Hebrew hisyashvos. It's not settled. Because that's not something that's part of me, um, the general way a person relates to something like that is as much as it affects them, there's something unstable about the whole thing. So let me explain.
When was the last time you were inspired to eat breakfast? And why is that funny? We never Right, because you generally don't think of inspiration with breakfast, right? I mean, like, maybe the breakfast was inspiring, but you don't need to be inspired to eat breakfast. Why? Why do you need to be inspired to eat breakfast? I would go more to the second. <laughs> Proof being is that most adults who don't feel that way don't eat breakfast. In other words, like, what do you mean? Like, like I'm hungry. I eat. That's the way it works, right? We, as, you, as you put it, right? When we tend to think of inspiration as something we need for things that are artificial to us, they're alien to us. They're not, they're something that we struggle with. They're not a natural part of who we are. And therefore, the inspiration serves as a way to compensate and to deal with that disconnect. Which means anything that we need to be inspired for, should we expect it to be stable? No. What? Well, I would say as long as inspiration is needed, it'll never be stable. I'll give you an example. What is the difference between holding an object and juggling an object? If you're holding an object, can you, can you just like let relax and not worry about it? If you're juggling an object, can you do that? No. Because no. juggling objects, like between you and the object, there's this need to like coordinate to make sure it all works out. And so inspiration has this, it's this, it's this, other entity which is mediating between me and what isn't really an innate part of my existence. Which doesn't make inspiration bad, it just means that that's what it is, okay? There's an old Hasidic uh, story, there's one of these true stories that may or may not have ever happened. That uh, one time the yeshiva bachram were invited to the rich man's house for a meal and they were served steak. And they all got very excited, they were eating the steak with tremendous gusto. And the rich man of the town who's very disturbed is like, these are yeshiva students. He's like, crass, animalistic people. Why can't they eat like a normal human being? And so the head of the yeshiva said, you don't understand. When do they ever eat steak? They never eat steak. Yeshiva Bachar in Poland, right? In Russia, like, they don't eat steak. It's like, it's a, it's a new thing and they get very excited and I'm oh, fine. Okay, he says, you eat steak every day. It's not a big deal. What would happen if they took away your steak? No more steak for you. You'd probably be very upset. What if the Shiva Bacham don't get any more steak? <laughs> the inverse of that is the stuff that is very natural, is very connected to us, that we do a stable thing. When something interferes with it, it really bothers us. The stuff that we have to be inspired for when it doesn't work out, we're like pretty accepting of it because it's... It's not really part of who we are. Okay. So when we, Siddha speaks about there's something called something basyashful, it's settled, it means I don't need to be inspired. And. What? Hesyashvos? Hey, tes. No, it's a hey, tough. Yud, shin, vez, vav, saf, I think. From the word yeshiva, to sit or to dwell. As in like dwelling in the sukkah. 
for example. Strange that we come to that. Oh, what? Oh. So if a sukkah, now a sukkah, what is a sukkah? Sukkah is something that surrounds you. And so it says, how is it possible to dwell in a sukkah? What's the sukkah? The sukkah is Hashem. There are things that Hashem knows. What are things that Hashem knows? What are some things that Hashem knows? No, 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 no. That's, that's childish. In other words, what I mean by childish is it's technically true, okay? But it's banal. And like if that's the level of the discussion you're handling, you're dealing with, then, then either you're actually a child, which is fine, right? Or you need to like grow up and be more mature about things. Like, is God omniscient? I don't know. Let's have a debate. Like, like really? Like that's something that like a person comes to a realization of by the time, I don't know, my, 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 my three-year-old had this clear by the time he was two. So like it's not a big deal. Like, so, what is it, what, so now if we're going to have adults talk about what Hashem knows. What does that really mean? Okay, he knows himself, which would make sense because Basil talked about knowledge, right? he knows himself. He knows the last of us. He knows his creations. Mm. I that I don't know if that's. Let's think about that for a second. He knows his creations or he knows. Let's do the creations one, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a verse that says, Rak eschem yedaiti, where Shem says, Only you I know amongst all the nations. It's a verse and what does that mean? What does it mean that you know, right? You know stuff that, it, what is it, what did I say it means that you know something? What does it mean that you know something? What, in a person, what is Right? In other words, in other words, in other words, that is part of who you are. You being you entails that as well, right? As a, as a you know, fully functional human adult, right? Having a basic appreciation of like how to walk around and talk to people, basic notions of causality, mathematics, just as part of being a person, right? You're not going and doing anything special that you remember. You don't need a laundry list to remember these things, right? Okay. On Rosh Hashanah, we have this whole discussion about, um, in the Musa, if you had attention, about Hashem remembering things, right? Why does must remember things? Maybe he forgot? Um, remember in the sense of the word that... Because the thing is not really truly significant, it's not really part of what it is to be him, can we take for granted that he's going to engage with it? Like, there are things that, like, I'm well-informed, but like, there's remembering because I forgot and there's remembering, like, taking it seriously. They're not the same thing. Okay. Now, let's go back to what are, so what are some of the things God knows? Knows what are some of the things that are true of him being him? Well, so now it's like, now creation can't go on that list because if God didn't create the world, would he still be God? Would he still be himself? Does he stop being God if, he's, if the world doesn't exist anymore? No, okay, so therefore, like, 
he is informed and knows about the creation, but that's not really what we're talking about. So what are other stuff that he knows? He knows the Jewish people. After all, we're his children, right? Yeah. If you're running for your life, do you have to make like a checklist to remember your kids? Why not? Right, okay. Um, so now, that means every Jew is how valuable? How precious? And, infinitely, right? And, and he knows that, right? Okay. Um, no matter how messed up a Jew is, does that change that fact? No. No matter how deep a Jew's struggles are, are they capable of not just surviving them, but actually triumphing over them? Yeah. These are things Hashem knows. He knows them. Now, here's the question. Do we know them? Do we know that every single one of us is infinitely valuable? Do we know that every single one of us, no matter how dark and, and disgusting our lives might look, that that's only superficial? That no matter how difficult our issues are, we actually have the capacity to not just survive them, but actually triumph over them and turn the negative into a positive? Do we know that? We can remember it. We can choose to act on it, but we don't know it. But you know who does know it? Hashem knows it. And he tries to share that with us and he tries to expose it. He's, right, he's the Mato Kozlerner saying, this is mine, this is what I know, this is my experience. So what's that? That's a makif. That's something that even when it's present never becomes part of you. And um, that's, in, in, in what does the sukkah represent? A hug. That, because that's what, what is, a, what is a hug? A hug is a very physical way of trying to convey. That's right. That's right. And so what is Hashem? Hashem is showing, Hashem is showing, I know, I know. The Jews like, but I don't know. Hashem says, that's okay. I know. I know. Right? After Rosh Hashanah, after Yom Kippur, after Sister Mitzvah, after all that, I know how important you are, how meaningful you are, how precious you are. I know all that. And I'm, and I'm exposing that. I'm sharing that, the fact that I know that. Does that mean now we walk away from that also knowing that? We don't walk away knowing that. Right? As much as the light shines in the room, the room stays dark. So then you can ask the question, well, like, how can I, how can that become something stable? How can that become something behis yashras? How can this, like, I can find that idea very inspiring. I can find that idea very meaningful and, and it opens me up and I rejoice, but that doesn't make it a settled, normal part of me, right? I, for, in order for it to be settled and normal, it would be up to something that I know for myself, right? So there's a big problem. If you're sitting with someone and they know it can have a tremendous effect on you. You feel the depth, the importance, the meaning, the significance. You know, you just don't fully understand it, but you don't know it for yourself. And if you don't know it for yourself, it's not going to be, it's not going to have that stability. It's not going to have that hisyashvas. So it comes along and says, so how can Hashem say, Teshlu basukah, dwell in a sukkah? That doesn't make any sense. If I was going to be hisyashvas, it's going to be settled, I have to know it for myself. All right, so I have spent an hour explaining the question. And we have 12 minutes left for the answer. What? Ah, but that's not the question. The question is not how we can know it, because if we know it, have we answered the question? 
Because now we're not dwelling in a sukkah anymore. Now we're dwelling in our own house. It's not, the question is not how come what he knows become what we know. It stays a sukkah. It stays makif. It stays the light in the room. It stays what he knows and not what we know. And yet there's something, we relate that in a very stable way. How does that work? But some people actually do know that. That's true, but that's not the question. In other words, that, how, how the things that Hashem knows about how infinitely valuable we are, etc., etc., etc. There are people that know that, right? They're very rare, but there are people that know that. Maybe we could know that more than we do right now, right? Maybe there's a discussion about that. There actually is, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the, that's not the question. The question of Chassidus is, it's a makif. It's not what you know. It doesn't become, at least not for what we're talking about, something you know. It stays what they know. So, if a child gets a lot of love from their parents, is that good or not good? Now, you should already know that if I'm asking, this is not such a simple thing, right? Okay. So, I mean, the obvious answer is good. What's the argument say it's not so good? Yeah, well, make an argument for... for well, you know, if we spoil a kid and then they'll be dependent. Or... Show them a lot of love. Like the counter argument is that they'll be dependent on you, maybe, and they'll... Does it feel good to be loved? Yes. Okay. Um, are you willing to do things in order to feel loved? Yeah? Mm-hmm. By the way, you want to know about cults? Mm-hmm. Okay. If parents show a lot of love, but they're not careful that the child has a sense that the love is not responsive to what the child is doing, what does that do to the child? That actually requires a lot of care because the natural instinct of parents, I'm a parent, I know other people parents, is you actually show a lot of love to your children when? And when they're throwing a fit? That's right. And so, what to, and so you're like, be, like, I'm going to work on being more loving to my children. And what usually that means is that when they're behaving well, they got a lot of love. That's usually how that actually translates. And when they're throwing a fit? So what, is it, what, what message is the child getting? And therefore, in order to be loved, I need to conform. I need to act in a certain way. Now, what does that do to a person? That's that. Yeah, that's true, which is why we all have such, like, you know, stellar relationships with our parents always. <laughs> Sarcasm implied. <laughs> okay. No, what, what, what goes in, it's a very deep place, unfortunately, in, in the mind of a person, is that love is something to be earned. 
and if it can be earned, it can be taken. And therefore, the person develops a fear of losing love. There's an underlying anxiety that can develop. Now, it doesn't always have to be like the end of the world and you need to see a psychiatrist for 20 years about it, but that can develop. Okay. Love actually can make a person feel very unsafe when they feel like the love can be taken away because they made a misstep. That make sense? Okay. By the way, that's how cults work. They make you feel very loved and make it very clear, not necessarily explicit, but clear that you can lose this if you step out of line. And now, you, now you're hooked. Now that's a really serious problem, right? Okay. What? Conditional. It's conditional. Okay. What if the child has a sense that this is my parent, this is my mother, this is my father, and that's where this love is coming from? And it's true, I don't know what it means to be a father, and I don't know what it means to be a mother, but I know this is not something that comes as a result of how I behave. What if that comes through to the child? Then it's very different, right? Okay. How do you dwell in the sukkah? Hashem knows all these things about us and we don't know them. There has to be, in addition to that, a sense that it's true I don't really know these things. I don't really appreciate I don't get it what it means, the infinite value of, of, what it, of, of my own soul, of my own life, of the co- potential capacity I have. I don't get that. I don't get it about me. I don't get it about other people. That's something that, to know you have to be godly. And I'm not so godly. You're not so godly. You know, God knows it. Godly people know it. Okay. And it can affect me. And if it affects me, it feels really amazing. It feels really wonderful, right? But I can then develop that same thing. It feels really amazing. It feels really wonderful. I'm a, and I want that. And I want to hold on to it. But it's not really mine. So that's not going to create any stability. But what if, in addition to that, there's also a sense that this is actually deeper than just God sharing an experience. There's something deeper than, than him saying, this is what I know. There's a fundamental truth that what binds us isn't based on experience at all. So there's this idea that when, when, a Jew, when a Jew is in the sukkah and the framing they put on that whole thing is I belong in the sukkah. It's a sukkah, but I belong there, right? A little child getting a hug from their parent, if everything is, yeah, it shouldn't have the sense, I did something to earn this hug. They should have the sense, this is my parent. Like, this is where I belong, right? If you add, so it's a, still a hug, right? They don't, like, there's no way a small child, like, I'm a parent, I have small children. There's no way they, like, it's weird when you start thinking about that because, like, then you think that you have parents and, like, how do they feel about you? It's really weird. <laughs> there's no way that a person who is a small child, or not even not a parent, but especially a small child, has any sense of what a parent feels, the love they feel towards their children. And it's weird because, like, parents often have a hard time actually really expressing it to their children. Because you can't explain it, you can't articulate it. What do you do? You go into the room and when they're sleeping, give them a kiss, you give them a hug, you sit on the couch with them. Like, but it, do they really get it? No, they don't really get it. 
it affects them, but they don't really get it, right? But in addition to it affecting, there has to be a sense they belong there. Right? It's not something that's earned. It's not something that's deserved. Does that make sense? So it's not, oh, now I know what God knows. I don't know what God knows. I, I, God knows it, and, God, and, and the fact that God knows it and he's sharing with me has an effect on me, and that's the joy and the celebration, and we're sitting in the sukkah, and it's a wonderful thing. But it's really not about the inspiration. It's about this is something that I can take with me because I know this is something that belongs to me. It's mine. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's having an effect on me, but... But above all that, it's, this is my place because this is not something that's being given to me because I earned it and deserved it. This is something that's being given to me because God and I have a connection that isn't based on anything else. And if you don't add that element into it, then you can't dwell in a sukkah. You can't be settled in a sukkah. You can only, you know, to... to, 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 to to give you a, a sense of it, yeah. How do you know who's the who, who's the sister? This is not going to work. We'll use the brothers because the sisters are all dressed up. How do you know who are the who's the brothers of the groom at a at a wedding? In the in, in, in not like at the chuppah, like the, at the you know in the dancing. How do can you tell? They're like no, not necessarily. What? No, I mean, yeah, they're all wearing the same. And like, if they're like, if they're if they're if they're all chabad, they're all wearing the same. Cause everyone's wearing the same thing. How many variations of black and white can you can you have, right? So I had to switch because because the sisters probably all have like some matching outfits or something. If you know that they're brothers, fine. But how do you know not from like that? What happens when the music stops? They keep dancing. Right, there are people who are dancing, maybe dancing as enthusiastic as everybody else, but why are they dancing? Because there's music. music. Why are the brothers dancing? Because his brother getting married, right? Right? They feel a sense of belonging to what's going on, right? Yeah. So there's this other element. There's the makif, but there's the sense of something else which is this is this is this is this belongs to me. It's not something I earned, it's not something I deserved, it's something I merited. And so therefore, when Hashem is trying to share all of these deep truths that he knows for himself, about himself and about us, even though I don't really get it, I don't it's not about having this being being inspired and, and feeling this is wonderful and, and, and wanting to hold on to it. It's the sense that it's there's a settledness, there's a calmness, there's a deep appreciation, there's a, there's a deep comfort. Like a little child getting a hug from their parent should feel like the safest thing in the world, not like, not like something you could lose. Right? If, a, if a child is getting hugged by their parent and they, and they feel like they could lose this, there's something very wrong, right? The child should feel a sense of, of, of that they belong, that there's attachment. So this hug is not something that, that could be taken away from me at any moment. I mean, the hug will end, but, like that, but there isn't that fear. And so there's a stableness, there's, just, there's, there's a settledness about things. So only when a person 
adds to the, to the realization of this idea that yes, Hashem knows all these deep truths about us and He's sharing with us and that's supposed to inspire us and it's supposed to elevate us and it's supposed to feel wonderful, right? Even though we don't really get it, it that, that's something that is only going to have a real lasting impact on us when we put it in the framework that this is not something that I merited, this is not something that I earned, this is something, as the Torah says, is a Yerusha, it's an inheritance. It's something that belongs to me because Hashem and I have this inseparable bond, like parent and child. Now, I will summarize the entire class, yes? Sitting in the sukkah should be like a two-year-old getting a hug from his parent. A two-year-old getting a hug from his parent is being affected profoundly by the warmth of that love. They have no sense of what that love really is. And they feel no anxiety, no fear, because, it, because on a gut level they know this, this is the way it ought to be. And if all those elements come together, it's a very stable thing. Even though it's not really part of him. It's not really something he knows for himself. Good? Okay. Now, what about the Lul of an Esrug? <laughs> Remember I said there's stuff that in every class I make sure people don't understand? <laughs> okay. Tomorrow we're going to do some Chastara. We're never doing the No, I just I only have two classes and I need to make a decision. Thank you.